The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, August 3rd, 2022, as we record this new show. Since we last left you on Monday, not much has changed in the American League Central standings. The White Sox won two out of three against Kansas City. Minnesota won two out of three against Detroit. Cleveland won two out of three against Arizona. So the White Sox are still two games back of Minnesota and one game back of Cleveland in the American League Central standings. But with the trade deadline, that's where we were expecting teams in the American League Central to be busy. Minnesota sure was. They added Baltimore Orioles closer Jorge Lopez and Cincinnati Reds starting pitcher Tyler Molly. The Twins added much-needed pitching depth. They also got Michael Fulmer from Detroit to stack up more bullpen depth and Cleveland's backup catcher Sandy Leone. That's right. Cleveland and Minnesota made a trade together. It was Cleveland's only move before the deadline, which is odd. For the White Sox... An opportunity rose when Heim Bloom of the Boston Red Sox shipped catcher Christian Vasquez to Houston. The Red Sox needed a catcher, so Rick Hahn shipped Reese McGuire to Boston for left-handed reliever Jake Diekman. Lots of strikeouts, lots of walks for Diekman in 2022, but hey, the White Sox got their left-handed reliever. There was much work to be done before the deadline. I hosted a three-hour Twitter space expecting the White Sox to make a move. As you know by now, they did not. Instead of reading Rick Hahn's quotes to you, I figured it would be best if you just heard the raw audio. This is Hahn before Tuesday night's game against the Kansas City Royals about his disappointment. I was joking with Scott Reifer. This is one of the more risky times of year to put me on television or with video in front of me because uh, I'm a little sleep deprived and I'm in a crap mood. Um, but so there's a couple of things up front that I want to make sure I, I get out before I throw it open to questions so that I'm sure that don't get missed. Uh, first, uh, in all candor, uh, we're disappointed that we weren't able to do more to improve this club. 
Uh, I think you saw a year ago at this time, you've seen it for the last uh, several years, arguably the last couple of decades, that it's our nature to try to improve this club at any opportunity we have. And unfortunately, we weren't able to line up on, on some of our other potential targets. Uh, so anyone out there who is feeling a level of frustration or disappointment, I'm, uh, I'm there with you. Uh, second, and probably more important, the fact of the matter is, is we still very much believe in this group that's inside that clubhouse right now. Uh, we feel they are very much capable of playing better baseball than we've seen over the first few months, and that there's the makings of a potential championship team in there should they get uh, to their accustomed levels of performance. Uh, one of the things that excites us is about getting this group together and having them playing together on a regular basis. And we're finally getting closer uh, to having the group, at least of the uh, six core guys since 2020 that performed well together, we're getting very close to having them all back together. And with a little bit of better for fortune health-wise going forward, I'm confident that that's a quality group and capable of winning this division and beyond. So now it's up to the White Sox current roster to make magic happen. Meanwhile, the Yankees added to their roster. Houston added to their roster. Seattle, Toronto, Tampa, and Minnesota added to their roster. It seems the other American League contenders didn't have a problem adding players before the deadline, but all the White Sox could do is flip a backup catcher for a left-handed reliever. For some White Sox fans, you are rejoicing because... You didn't want Rick Hahn to make any moves. Either you don't believe in the team's chances in 2022, or you don't entirely trust Rick Hahn to make any moves. It's August 3rd, and honestly, baseball general managers are not that important anymore. It's really all about the clubhouse and the managers telling the front office what kind of players they need from the 40-man roster in case of injury or poor performance. The trade deadline is when general managers compete. And Rick Hahn fell short. Again. The only thing anyone can be confident in Rick Hahn is his ability to acquire relievers. Anything else and it's setting oneself up for disappointment. But it's just not the trade deadline where Rick Hahn has failed this year. His offseason efforts prior to the 2022 season are also looking worse by the day. The collection of Lurie Garcia, Vince Velasquez, Josh Harrison, Reese McGuire, which has turned into Jake Diekman, AJ Pollock, Johnny Cueto, Kendall Graveman, and Joe Kelly. This is over $45 million. And the collection of those players combined in their efforts with the White Sox is below five war. Five war adding all of those players. What's really the remaining question for the 2022 Chicago White Sox? Can the players overcome the shortfalls of their general manager? And let's add in their manager, Tony Russa. Let's start there. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, what a whimper of a trade deadline for Rick Hahn. Sure was. I always hesitate when writing headlines that say like, 
the White Sox can't do this, or Rick Hahn can't do this, or there's no way that this can happen, and then it happens. And, you know, my attitude is more like, eh, just, you know, it's, it's bad if it does, but I always feel a little bit foolish when <laughs> basically I invite him or them to defy me, and they seem to gladly do. Although this, in this case, I think we can say it wasn't gladly. Yeah, it was definitely not gladly. His comments, which we just played, him coming out and saying that if you are frustrated and disappointment that he shares the same sentiment, do you think that he really does? I mean, I think if he's trying to relate to White Sox fans about what happened at the trade deadline, I think that he's slightly missing the point. It's not so much that he didn't make a move. It's the frustration and disappointment with him as the general manager because the offseason, which I touched on the intro, he has spent over $45 million on payroll signing Lurie Garcia, Vince Velasquez, Josh Harrison, trading for Reese McGuire, trading for A.J. Pollock, good signings to Johnny Cueto and Kendall Graveman, and then, of course, Joe Kelly, then he flips Reese McGuire for Jake Diekman. This is over $45 million of payroll, Jim. And this is five war of production out of all of these players that he was supposed to add what was the expectation of World Series or bust in 2022. And the only thing he does before the trade deadline is flip his backup catcher, Reese McGuire, for Jake Diekman. And Diekman's had two good outings for the White Sox so far. Two innings, four strikeouts. All right, that's awesome. But there's still plenty of holes in this team. This team is still privy to getting shut down by right-handed pitching or even left-handed pitching, as we saw on Monday night uh, in Daniel Lynch against Kansas City. I just think that's where the frustration and irritation is right now. It's not so much that the White Sox didn't make a move. It's so much that Rick Hahn continues to struggle in his role in this calendar year. Well, more than the calendar year, too. I mean, you know, you go back to the various acquisition periods. We're talking trade deadlines and winters. There, There's always the delay of a bigger move that makes everybody happy. Just, you know, he always treasures, prioritizes this financial flexibility, and it's never used for anything meaningful. It's always these small potato moves, these marginal moves, and just, you know, kind of, to, to, to use a less elegant phrase, dicking around. Like, it just that's, you know, moving, oh, here's a reliever, here's a backup catcher, here's a utility guy. But it's never anything that solves a problem. Meanwhile, right field and uh, turns over, DH turns over a year after year with no real great idea for them. And whatever flexibility is generated is never used for that. It's always used to solve the problems that the small moves didn't solve in the first place. So just... There, there's not a sense of, of learning. And yeah, I, I think the deadline is disappointing because, you know, we hear about the deadline as a, well, we're comfortable with how we proceeded in the off season, but if we don't, you know, if we do have some glaring flaws, we'll solve them at the deadline. And then, you know, it turns out the glaring flaws, which were obvious, which was, you know, especially right field and their uh, inability to hit decent right-handed pitching on a reliable basis, like, the, you know, those were known 
entering the season and he can't solve them at the deadline because it turns out deadline moves can be kind of hard you know, when you don't have a great farm system that uh, other teams might not value or you have a bunch of uh, prospects who are you know relatively new in town and haven't really you know established their trade value as much as other teams extra prospects have and so it's not easy and you know he comes away frustrated and you know the the whole idea of like you know him being frustrated along with us he spent so much time being combative with the White Sox fan base over, you know, White Sox fans wanting more, wanting more authoritative uh, moves to super solve problems. And, you know, he chides fans or says like, you know, you don't know what we know and, and, and trying to kind of hi-hat everybody. And, you know, when it comes to having a pretty bad offseason, then countering that or, or, or trying to come back from that with a trade deadline, and that's a bust he can't all of a sudden like take our side. Like I saw the meme going around with the, uh, I think you can leave of the you know, hot, uh, Tim Robinson, the hot dog costume saying, we're all trying to find the person who did this. You know, that's kind of what it feels like. It's the him trying to disassociate almost from the deadline and say, I'm with you. That guy sucks. Who's that guy? Who knows? <laughs> Meanwhile, in uh, San Diego, they get Josh Hader and Josh Bell and Juan Soto and in the last hour, they got Brandon Jury. Why? Who knows? They needed more depth. Mm-hmm. First pitch that Brandon Jury sees, hits a grand slam after Juan Soto and Josh Bell walk. The very first inning, the Padres get all of these players at the trade deadline. And it comes, it's working out great for them in one inning. They've already <laughs> scored five runs uh, against Colorado. And yeah, you know, people will say, look at San Diego. They may not make the World Series this year, and it is because they have the Los Angeles Dodgers in their way in which they have a super team as well, but at least they try. Everyone questions the Padres, well, what about the future? And their response is, who cares? We got Juan Soto. <laughs> it's entertainment. Exactly. I mean, like, they're, they're entertaining on and off the field. And, you know, the I think my biggest takeaway from the Padres is not necessarily Juan Soto or Drury or Hader or like whoever they got. It's that they decided to pay Eric Hosmer to play somewhere else. And if the White Sox signed Eric Hosmer to that deal, we'd never hear the end of it in terms of how much it handcuffed the franchise. And this is why you can't sign nine-figure deals because if they go bust, you're going to deal with it for years and it's going to hold the team back. And the Padres said like, nah, it's fine. You know, we're going to pay him $13 million to play for the Red Sox now. And, uh, you know, oh, well, you know, that, like that's the, you know, I'm thinking like when, you know, Detroit signed uh, Prince Fielder and then they, you know, which is kind of an impulse buy because Victor Martinez got hurt. And so they decided to super solve the Victor Martinez injury by signing Prince Fielder to a really long deal. And then, you know, they found out a way to get under it, out from under it by trading for Ian Kinsler. We saw the Mariners uh, sign uh, Robinson Cano and get out from under it. Uh, so, like, you know, that, that's the biggest takeaway for me is, like, you know, the White Sox are terrified of these deals, whether it's Rick Hahn or Kenny Williams or Jerry Reinsdorf, who cares? Like, they're all part of the same unit. Uh, but, you know, when you see a team sign, like, a, a you know, an idea that's, as ostensibly bad as Hosmer was, you know what, like when he signed it, everybody kind of laughed and made fun of, you know, Scott Boris's 
hyperbolic claim that he was the Federal Express to playoff mm-hmm. fill, I think was the phrase he used for Hosmer. And it turns out that he's not good and he's kind of a drag and, and you know, he does not succeed in modern baseball with his ground ball rate and, you know, his low power for first baseman. And the Padres ultimately said, like, okay, we'll pay you to go away. And then they continued to make big boy moves. And that's, so, I mean, it's cool that they're doing Soto and, you know, after doing Snell and Darvish and Musgrove signing him to extend. I mean, like, they do a bunch of fun things that are exciting. But also, like, when they don't do something or when they do something that doesn't work out, they make it go away. And I think that's, you know, when we're talking about the White Sox being a bigger market team, it'd be fun if they signed a nine million, uh, nine, sorry, nine figure deal, hundred million dollar deal. It would be just as fun as if we didn't treat that as like, oh, God, I hope this works. Because teams with active GMs and transactional front offices can somehow find a way to get out from under it to where it doesn't hamstring them for as long as the deal is. Yes. And, you know, people are asking, well, how come the White Sox couldn't make a move? Does no one like their prospects? And the answer is teams do like their prospects. They like Colson Montgomery, but that may be it. Maybe they like Brian Ramos. Maybe they like Oscar Claus. Those are the only three prospects that they like from the White Sox farm system. And the White Sox are just not ready to move on from them. And you will point at other deals where teams are trading like their 21st best prospect or their 30th best prospect for other guys, for major leaguers to patch up holes. How come the White Sox can't do that? And again, this is more of the shortfalls. Like, Rick Hahn, that is your responsibility. Nobody wants Gavin Sheets. That's kind of your responsibility. Nobody wants Jake Berger. That's kind of your responsibility. Player development is under your responsibility. Roster construction is under your responsibility. And it all comes to a head here, the trade deadline, in which this is the contention window, and you don't have any ammo, and this is not new. We brought this up before the season, Jim, that this could be a concern with the White Sox having the worst mm-hmm. farm system in baseball. That's why they needed to make the offseason a bigger priority. If you're going to spend this type of cash, you got to spend it more wisely. He didn't spend the cash wisely. So the offseason is still rearing its head. And the offseason retroactively changing my grade of a B- minus to an F because A.J. Pollock is having a terrible season this year, which sinks the grade. And you see it in many outlets right now that are listing the White Sox as a trade deadline loser. I think even the Athletic gave the White Sox an F for their efforts before the trade deadline. This entire 2022 season is an F for Rick Hahn. The White Sox could go and they could win the American League Central. They could go and win the World Series. And their GM still deserves an F for their efforts And what will make that dream or miracle a reality is the efforts that Rick Hahn put in in 2020 and in 2021, most certainly not the efforts that he has put in into 2022. Well, I think if they won the World Series, you'd have to upgrade it a little bit because you'd think Johnny Cueto would factor in. Maybe Jake Diekman is actually pretty good based on his first two outings. So, uh, like, yeah, I, I, I would stop you at World Series. I think there would be have to be some benefit of his offseason to actually win the whole thing. If it's somehow Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert doing the whole thing, then maybe. Uh, you know, maybe it's a case where, like, if they're both channel Eddie Rosario and go off for a series and the White Sox win every game 11 to nine, then yeah, maybe he didn't do anything, but like, 
I would say central doesn't mean anything, especially given how bad the central looks. Like that's the case where, yeah, they're $190 million payroll spending, yeah, how many more millions uh, than they did last year and somehow got worse. That's, that's a problem. The only player that I could see making a postseason impact would be Kendall Graveman as in a positive postseason impact. <laughs> there are some players I'm looking on this list that most definitely could make a negative impact yeah. in the postseason. But in response to the White Sox not making a move at the deadline, the players won back-to-back games against the Kansas City Royals, 9-2 and 4-1. to Jose Abreu has home runs in back-to-back games at home, which is huge because we've outlined recently his struggles to hit at home. This offense beat up a last-place team the last two days, which is good. Do you think they have it in them, Jim, to overcome the faults of Rick Hahn and Tony Russa, who got caught napping in the first inning of a game. <laughs> Literally napping, or at least, yeah, drowsy bear. I think right now with the schedule, yes. Like, you know, this this 19-game stretch we're talking about with the Royals and the A's and the Tigers and uh, Rangers. Like, yeah, that's this is the kind of stretch where they should win a two out of three. And so, like, you know, having them having won four out of six against Oakland and Kansas City, that's fine. Like they just have to keep doing it. Like, you know, I would say like, you know, basically this 19 game stretch 13 and six is kind of my target for what they should do based on what they haven't done in previous weeks and months. Like this is the, this is the stretch to put together. We saw like with Lucas Giolito, I mentioned the wake up call that, you know, if you're not expecting great things from him, but expecting to be marginally better, this should be a game where he should succeed a little bit. And he pitched okay. He pitched five uh, innings of two-run ball, like good enough. Got the job done, got the win. It's the kind of improvement that like he needs to make in order to be useful the rest of the season. And, and that's kind of how I'm looking at this next 19 games. And really that's until we figure out exactly what is wrong with Luis Roberts, because that's really my biggest open question at this point. Lance Lynn made some strides. I think his last uh, his last start against the Royals was excellent, and and the the stuff was lively. The velocity was there. He uh, did not have any marathon plate appearances or sequences that cost him an inning of work. He could have kept going if there wasn't the uh, you know the the rain delay, the sixty five minute rain delay that you know was already stretching him a little bit. So like. He looked good. Uh, Cease looks good. Quaid looks good. Like rotation, as I yeah, as I maintained, is more or less fine. It comes down to the offense against right-handed pitching, and you know they won against Brady Singer, which they didn't do earlier in the year. So that's something. They beat up Brad Keller. Uh, the way they did it with like a lot of singles through the infield, not quite sure. Like like that's that's really my biggest reservation. But for the time being, with them just needing wins with them needing to take advantage of this schedule and keep pace or make up ground against the twins and guardians. Like it's good. It's good enough. Like I'm right now, uh, you know, given that August Abreu is, is coming around and uh, Jimenez looks pretty good. Robert, we'll see what he, he's doing, but basically I'm trying to reserve judgments about what this team has left to offer for like end of series, end of weeks. Uh, just because I think, you know, we, as we saw on the Monday opener, it can get depressing when they're playing poorly and given everything uh, we've accrued in terms of knowledge and what they put forth, like a bad game against Oakland, a bad game against the Royals can feel like it means a lot. Then the smoke clears the end of the series and they did what they needed to do. So basically I'm taking that attitude. I think going forward is like, try not to overact to any one game, but I think for the time being like winning two out of three is important, especially if they can't win three in a row. Like they have to, uh, bounce back from the ugly games, and so far they're doing that. 
Yeah, the White Sox won four out of six on this homestand. But again, the caveat is they're last place teams. You did call it, Jim. You told me that they're going to go four and six when I demanded them to win six straight games against Oakland and Kansas City. I guess I'm content. But again, this was a great opportunity to strain six wins in a row at home, a place that you've been playing poorly at all season long against Oakland and Kansas City, teams that are not good. And they booted two games. They booted the first games of each of the series. Mm -hmm. And during this 19-game stretch where it's really the easiest stretch of the season for them with all of these below 500 teams in a row, they're only 5-3. and They split the two games in Colorado, which, you know, they had a chance to win that second game against the Rockies. And they go 2-3, and two out of three against Oakland, two out of three against Kansas City. So... Yeah, that's where the White Sox are, and they're still two games back of the Minnesota Twins. They're still one game back of Cleveland. And this offense in the six-game homestand only scored 24 runs, and nine of those runs were in one game. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we could be happy about Tuesday night. We could be happy about August Abreu, and even Aloy Jimenez is coming to life, and we'll get to Aloy Jimenez in one moment. But if this team is going to overcome the non-moves of Rick Hahn, and they're going to overcome Tony La Russa asleep at the wheel, then you are right, Jim. I agree with you. It is really all about this offense. No one can get hurt. Basically, stay healthy, everyone. Keep figuring out how to hit right-handed pitching. All right, the good news. So I mentioned Aloy Jimenez, Jim. He's 13 for 26 in this past week with a home run and five RBIs. We've already seen August Abreu show up he's got two home runs already in three days in this month could we see august Aloy? possibly i mean like the the swings are good the launch angle is good it's the you know all fields hitter the line drives you know he's, he still doesn't maybe have that classic home run launch angle but you know we know from watching jimenez that uh when he's going wrong when he's you know just off his game he just pounds balls to the left side into the ground and you know grounders third grounders are short maybe some ones that leak through when they're hit 100 miles per hour but you know that's a uh, low ceiling for contributions especially since he's not you know especially fast or you know that great of a base runner so uh you basically watching him you just get a sense of you know is he all fields hitting? Is he getting the ball over the infielders' heads? And he is. Like it just it's a productive, hard to shift, uh banded ball he's producing right now. And you know, I think ideally, you know, you, you put a few more balls over the fence, but given how much we've seen him struggle coming back from injury, in this case like managing an injury. You know, when he's 80%, you know he's 80%. Like, he's he's somebody who can't, like, you know, like Abreu, when he's 80%, sometimes he looks 100%, sometimes he looks 90 but he's good at hiding whatever he's playing through at times. Like, Jimenez hasn't been good at that. So, if he's figured out how to be productive around an injury or when he's not his best or when he doesn't have, like, his strongest legs, terrific. Like, it's, it's, it's really a stride in his development. You know, maybe it's one you don't necessarily want him to have to use playing hurt. You'd rather him just not have an injury he's uh, maintaining, but if he's not going to be the healthiest guy, the next best thing is being somebody who can play while banged up. And the swings are good. He's under control. He's not trying to do too much. He's not, uh, it seems like he's he's selecting pitches that are not knee high or below. He's actually, he, he's, he's kind of zoning in what he can lift. 
either barrel uh, around or like even just with a broken bat single. Like it was a good swing. It was a, it, he met the ball well enough. It was a broken bat, but it had the nice trajectory to get over the infielder's head and be useful contact. That's, I think, what we need to see is just, you know, that kind of swing, that kind of swing plane where he's meeting the ball. And I think he's doing that really well right now. You mentioned Lance Lynn's excellent start against Kansas City. The one thing that caught my attention in that start, Jim, as he's on his way of winning me a steak dinner. You heard that, Beef Loaf. I know you listen. <laughs> We're on the path to winning me this ribeye, Lance Lynn. Let's go, bud. A curveball. He threw the curveball eight times. Uh, three of the curveballs that he threw, result one resulted in a whiff. Uh, two got called a strike. He fooled Salvador Perez a couple of times with the curveball. He's so fastball-oriented. Four-seamer, two-seamer, cutter. But now here comes a curveball. And I make note of this because there's an upcoming series at home with the Houston Astros arriving. And we know that the Astros are going to be in the White Sox way this year of reaching the World Series. So that is still the dream for the White Sox in 2022 and with that being a four-game series, there's a good chance Lance Lynn is going to be pitching one of those games. And we know the Astros are so prepared against Lance Lynn. Do you think that this could be a useful pitch for Lance Lynn and we could see it more often in upcoming starts, Jim? I think so. And I think it's more necessary, not necessarily because of the Astros, but like coming into the start, lefties were hitting them really hard. Uh, you know, 320 average. Uh, 560 slugging, 919 OPS. He was handling righties more or less fine. A little bit homer prone, but um, you know, limiting the hits, limiting the OBP. It was really just lefties doing a lot of extra base hit damage against him. So the curveball is one of those pitches. Like if he's not a great changeup artist and he's never really had one, the slider. You know, if if he's not in the cutter, I thought also was really improved pitch. Like he was, he really had some life and 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 movement on that cutter, and that's something that he can help against lefties. But the curveball, you know, if you can't throw a changeup, I think the curveball is the next best pitch against lefties, and, and to mitigate that kind of damage. So uh, more than just the Astros, although it could be useful against the Astros because you know we we've seen him pound his fastball. I, I think he just needed something to get lefties off his off his off his heat off his you know that that one you know more or less velocity he was throwing and the you know the the narrow bands of of movement that he has and the curveball might just be something that uh locks hitters up makes them think a little bit more and makes his fastball a little bit more dangerous like we talk about lucas giolito like uh when his changeup's great his fastball's better when his fastball's better his changeup's great i think just having that kind of pitch that just adds that complicates the mental calculus for hitters i think is is what uh you know lynn can benefit from and the player who deserved more in this series, Michael Kopech. I thought Michael Kopech was outstanding, Jim, on Monday night. He made two mistakes. Salvador Perez crushed one of those mistakes over the batter's eye for a home run. And now Toronto Blue Jay with Merrifield. <laughs> my favorite move of the entire deadline. We're, we're going to get to that in a moment. But Whit Merrifield hit a solo home run. That's it. Kopech made two mistakes. He got burned. He allowed two runs, and he gets the loss, even though he goes seven innings, and we see the velocity returning for Michael Kopech, Jim, up to 98.3 miles per hour. He was great. The offense was terrible. I was pretty angry after that loss just because they really punted a terrific Michael Kopech outing. 
I'm feeling a lot better about Michael Kopech, Jim, if all of a sudden he's able to rear back and he's got it in reserve, the type of velocity that we saw from him last year coming out of the bullpen. Yeah, I feel better about the arm. I'm still not a big fan of the slider. Like, it seems like it's not a great pitch for him, and I don't want to see him Dylan cease it to where he's, like, throwing it you know near half the time or more than that because I think he can get burned on it. Like, the fastball, I'm looking at the max exit velocity in his fastball was 96 miles per hour. Like, they did not square it up. They couldn't, you know, get on top of it, had the nice ride, had the explosive velocity, the, the, the slider and the curveball. Uh, I think more of the slider this time around was the one that just got hammered when it got when it got hit hard. So that's my one reservation about Kopech is that like I saw more sliders and against a better offense that might blow up on him. But, you know, we talk about our power rankings or you know, how we'd arrange the rotation turn to turn. And I think it's like Cease, Cueto. And then I would feel like it's Lynn Kopech Giolito pretty clearly in terms of what Lynn showed his last time out and the variety and the versatility he showed. I think Kopech is still like a one and a half pitch pitcher as a starter to me, but I'm still, yeah, I still like that more when his fastball is moving like it was uh, versus Lucas Giolito, whose stuff still seems underpowered. Well, the White Sox now pack their bags as they will be away from home for a week that will have them play eight games on the road. Starting first in Arlington, Texas, we will preview the White Sox first Rangers series after a word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so after that six-game homestand against Oakland and Kansas City, the Chicago White Sox now head on the road. They have four games in Texas, a day off, and then they have four games in three days against the Kansas City Royals before they come home for a seven-game homestand that will feature a three-game series against the Detroit Tigers and then four home games against the Houston Astros. But they got to get through these eight road games first. And the Texas Rangers, currently 46-58 and 58 on the season. They are 21 games back of the Houston Astros for first place in the American League West. But the Rangers are currently in third place in the AL West. They have lost their last three games. 
In the last 10 games, the Rangers are 3-7, and seven, so things are not great right now for the Rangers. For the season series, if you recall, the Rangers won that series in Chicago in mid-June, so they are currently up 2-1 to one on the Chicago White Sox. Your pitching probables for this four-game series, starting on Thursday night at 7.05 p.m. Central Time, it's Johnny Cueto against left-handed pitcher Cole Reagans, who will be making his Major League debut for the Texas Rangers. Friday night at 7.05 p.m. Central Time, this is a watch party night in which we'll be using playback to host a watch party. Jim and I, along with our friends from the 108s, will be watching this game together. It's Dylan Cease on the mound for the White Sox against Glenn Otto. Saturday night, 6.05 p.m. Central Time, Michael Kopech against old friend Dane Dunning against the White Sox. And then Sunday afternoon, 1.35, it is Lucas Giolito against Spencer Howard. Jim, you mentioned earlier in the game, Luis Robert. One news item that I was missing from our intro regarding the return of Luis Robert, the plan for Robert, according to Tony La Russa, is that he's going to DH Thursday's game. He's going to play center field on Friday. He's going to sit Saturday. And then he's going to play somewhere on Sunday. DH, center field, who knows? We'll figure it out as it goes along. What do you think of the way the White Sox have handled Luis Robert, Jim? By their standards of, or I should say, even by their warp standards of how they've managed injuries this season, whether it's like Makata or Grandal or just, you know, what, what have you. Like, this is really baffling. Um, I'm not sure. The one thing I can think of is that, like, it could be a byproduct of the option limit that teams have, like only being able to option uh, players up and down like four times. Like, maybe they don't want to burn him coming off the injury list, like calling up an Adam Hazley again, because there really isn't much left in terms of uh, useful outfielders in Charlotte, aside from Adam Hazley to where like, maybe they just, you know, want to make sure that they can, you know, have the freedom to call him up later in the year when it's more necessary, but it's, uh, I don't know what to make of it. Like, you know, we're, I was supposed to see him in Nashville. He didn't play. He had the virus. Was the virus affecting him the whole time? You know, uh, you know, the timeline really doesn't make sense in terms of like when they benched him because of the virus he had and the symptoms he was having with blurred vision and lightheadedness, you know, just how it affected him, the field and how, you know, how little action he's seen. And he's basically coming back to the White Sox without a rehab stint. And we've seen that we've seen the White Sox struggle with that and uh, in, in, in with various players, AJ Pollock, I think being the most noteworthy example. So yeah, it's, I, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't get why, you know, aside from just feeling like they're, they're maybe hemmed in by, you know, not wanting to option a guy who might be running out of them. It's weird for him to come off the injured list, lose like the ability to put him back on it if he needs to be on it. Like they could very well just like have him go back on his rehab stint, play a couple games, good to go, great. Uh, if he, you know, if the symptoms persist or if he looks really ragged or rusty coming out of it, they really don't have any options in terms of, you know, they'd have to do another 10 days, like a hard reset on his unavailability. So it really feels like an unnecessary risk here. Uh, and I don't necessarily get the benefits. So I'm hoping that, you know, he looks no worse for the wear when it comes to how well he's hitting at the plates. And, you know, hopefully also when it comes to the, his blurred vision that it's more or less cut and dried. Like, 
he'll know if he's feeling better, he'll know if he's not, and it'll be easily identifiable versus something to play through. But, you know, I always, when, when it comes to vision and stuff, I always go back to like Reynaldo Lopez not being able to like read catcher signs clearly and that not coming up until he had like double eye surgery. And all of a sudden, like he has the confidence to pitch better. Like how did that go undetected or unexplored for so long? So like, yeah, there are just a few different injury histories from different players kind of converging into one player. And I don't have a whole lot of confidence in how they're handling it. The blurred vision is a big concern because one needs their vision in order to hit major league pitching gym. So let's see how Robert does DHing Thursday night's game against the Rangers. And if he can see the ball clearly, and if he can swing the bat like he did when he was in the Minnesota series, that's a big boost for the White Sox. But the way that they have handled yeah. players returning from injury has been really odd this year. And for Luis Robert, I get it from a White Sox perspective. If that perspective is, we need him. We cannot wait around a week while he rehabs in Charlotte to, to bring him back. This is an opportunity to gain some game, games this weekend and this upcoming midweek on Minnesota and Cleveland so if there's any chance we could have prime Luis Robert, we need to roll the dice. Like, I understand that perspective, but at the same time, I agree with you. This is a pretty big risk that White Sox are taking that can compound the problems. He was playing with the blurred vision, and it didn't seem to affect him. Like, he was great in the uh, Minnesota series. Like, it didn't affect him at the plate. Like, his reads were in the center field were pretty much garbage. Like, they kind of deteriorated on him. And he was making a lot of like, you know, uncertain steps and slow reads. And, you know, you know, after he went on the injured list, like Rick Hahn said that, yeah, it's affecting him more in the field. So hopefully, like, you know, if he was hitting that, poor, if he's hitting that well with that poor of vision or that inconsistent of vision, perhaps like he comes back like, you know, almost like he was bitten by a radioactive bug or something like that with his normal vision back to full strength. Like all of a sudden, like he, you know, he can understand the whole zone now and read spin perfectly. And he's a, he's a beast, but yeah, it's just, it's really confusing. And yeah, I've just seen the White Sox drag injuries out uh, to where I don't necessarily feel like Robert's going to be a great candidate to come back seamlessly. Mm, That, that, that could be true. Again, they are a top 10 offense this year in Major League Baseball on the road. And when you look at weighted runs created plus at road splits this year, Luis Robert has the 10th best WRC plus this year, Jim, on the road. He has a 147 weighted runs created plus at road games. Jose Abreu has a 187 weighted runs created plus at road games. He has an OPS over 1,000 in road games this year. That's the second best mark behind Jordan Alvarez. And Andrew Vong is a good road hitter for the White Sox. He's got a 161 weighted runs create a plus. So if Luis Robert bounces back and he's healthy, he, along with Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu, the White Sox have three of the top 10 hitters performing on the road. Why they can't hit like this at home to entertain us? I don't get it. The Rangers pitching staff outside of Dane Dunning is pretty weak or brand new. Tell me the road offense is going to show up, Jim, and put up a lot of runs on the scoreboard this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that the Brad Keller-Brady Singer performances can be carried through. Like, I hope they're 
yeah, are fewer singles, more doubles, more line drives, fly balls than the seeing eye singles that we're getting through. But at least it was something. Same thing with like, uh, you know, the you know, coming back against the athletics. Like that was something. So they're going into another series where the you know name brand pitching is not strong. So hopefully more of that something. <laughs> I think this is uh, the way I'm looking at it. Is yeah, you know, I'm not expecting dominance. I'm not expecting just solid one through nine performances and, and all of a sudden like reversing the home run numbers, but just the you know, quality of bats, the pitch recognition, the not swinging themselves into six pitch innings and, and uh, disappearing quietly. Like they've avoided that in four out of six games, which is pretty good. So here's hoping that the, you know, they continue to at least understand that when they're facing uh, kind of a ragged pitching staff, like the Rangers have that uh, they are the ones who are supposed to be, the intimidators, not the ones who are supposed to be out of sorts. And, uh, yeah, more or less this past week, they've been okay at it. Um, they can do better, but we've seen them do worse. I think Jose Abreu is going to have a big weekend. I mean, he's hit home runs in back-to-back games at home. Great sign. Great sign. Opposite but field power. Opposite field power. But the way that he hits on the road, which is completely different than the way that he hits at home, and with it being August Abreu, I've got a feeling he's going to have a big series in Texas, and he's going to have a big series at Kansas City. Like, this could be the eight-game stretch where there's a lot of people that point their finger at me and be like, ha, you doubted Jose Abreu, and look at him now. But we know about August Abreu, and I'm telling you ahead of time on how great of a hitter Jose Abreu is on the road. I am with you. I am expecting Jose Abreu to have monster, a monster road trip here for the Chicago White Sox. So that could go a long way, especially if Aloy Jimenez continues the way that he hits. And if Andrew Vaughn, which that might have been a surprise to you that he's one of the best hitters on the road this year in Major League Baseball, that hopefully we see a lot of runs here and it will cause us to ask questions. How come you can't hit like this at home? But at least we could watch on television, then put up a bunch of runs on the scoreboard. A game that they may not need to score a lot, but sure would be nice, is the one that Dylan Cease is going to be starting on Friday night, Jim. And I feel like we don't talk enough about Dylan Cease because of how terrible everything else has been lately with the <laughs> Chicago White Sox. He just won back-to-back Pitcher of the Month titles in June and July for the American League. He's currently third in Fangraph's war. He's first in baseball reference war. What does Cease have to do, Jim, to prove to baseball writers who will be voting for the American League Cy Young Award in August and September that he's deserving of the top award? Because I feel like if you ask national baseball writers, they still have him behind Garrett Cole or Shane McClanahan. I think, you know, few unearned runs is key. I mean, few earned runs as well. But I think, you know, when I was not necessarily a skeptic of Cease, but just, you know, not getting carried away with the early stretch of one and zero unearned run or earned runs that he had going, it's because he was just giving up a crap ton of uh, unearned runs after errors. And so I thought, you know, that's a mark of a pitcher is like being able to overcome mistakes made by the defense. And he had a stretch of not doing that. So as he was breaking out of that, I still not held it against him, but was on guard that, you know, maybe he wasn't as good as he had been pitching. But I think, you know, now we're two months of this. I think those uh, ugly starts were 
uh, you know, the, where he had like six unearned runs. That was like early June. And so he's basically been two months of not being that guy. Um, he's, you know, more or less answered my doubts. I think just, you know, for the rest of the season, it's more about being able to pitch six innings with regularity, like not having these pitch counts that inflate on him and, and limit him to five, five and a third, whatnot. Like being able to finish six, I think is like the last mark, uh, that he's looking for in terms of being that kind of Garrett Cole level pitcher to where like, oh, we're not going to get rid of this guy till the seventh. I think that's where he needs to get, but uh, that feels almost greedy <laughs> to ask like, you know, as well as you're doing everything else with missing bats and limiting damage and keeping your team in every game pitching, we want one more inning from you to start. And so um, I'm not necessarily demanding that from him, but I think in terms of like getting over the hump and maybe like being a finalist for the Cy Young or better than finalist. Like if he's actually getting you know, a lot of first place votes, like that would be how he gets it. I think is by being that six to seven inning guy versus the five to six inning guy. I think writers are going to point at his walk rate as well. Cause his walk rates over 10%. That's more than double of Justin Verlanders. And that's doubling up Shane McClanahan. So it's not so much that it's not only that he has to go six or seven innings per start gym. He also needs to reduce his walks because of the voting yeah. is today and we can make a very strong case for Dylan Cease to win American League Cy Young. I feel like for people outside of Chicago and they just look at the stat line and maybe they just watch highlights at Dylan Cease, they're going to compare him to Verlander and McClanahan and say, yeah, I'm impressed by the strikeouts. I'm impressed by the ERA. But the reason he's not getting my first place vote is that he doesn't walk he walks the batters way too often compared to McClanahan and Verlander. Yeah. And I think those go hand in hand, like the efficiency and the, the clumps of walks. And I think he's been better at it. Like he had the, you know, that we're talking about that, uh, that odd stretch of, um, you know, big unearned run totals. And he had some, you know, walks clump up on him there too. You know, since the all-star break, he's been more or less, or should, sorry, should, you know, since like the last two months, like after the, the first, uh, you know, ugly couple starts of early June, he's been somebody who's like, you know, walks a normal amount of hitters now. So I think he's not, you know, this may be too late for him to really make up um, ground in the walk column. Like it's kind of like how Steve Stone refers to the losses column. Like you can't give up losses. Like you can't lower that number. And so I think he's just, the first half of the season, the first, like, especially like the first two months, uh, that walk number got away from him. And so, you know, in order to have like a really impressive walk rate, that's going to have to be a next year project, not this year. But if he can at least, you know, limit his walks to like two per outing, um, that's a guy who can throw six innings pretty easily. I think when he's walking three to four, that's when you're talking about 100 pitches, you know, through five. And that's something where just it's, it's especially with the number of close games the White Sox play, that brings you know, Kendall Graveman on back-to-back -back days in the conversation, relying a little bit too much on Joe Kelly, you know, Liam Hendricks, what kind of shape he's in. And that's, that's, I think, the one thing maybe keeping him from the ace conversation. But, I mean, last, looking at his last uh, five starts, like six innings, five and two-thirds, seven, six, six, that's great. So, I mean, like, he's, he's there. Just I think there needs to be more of that over the last two months for him to get on that tier uh, of getting first-place votes in the Cy Young. Yeah, game. and I don't want to anyone get confused. We both think that Dylan Cease has been awesome this year. But now we're looking ahead because he's won back-to-back -back pitcher of the month titles in the American League in June and July. We're getting greedy here. We want our guy yes. to win the Cy Young. 
the White Sox have had you know pitchers in the top ten, top five, or even the top three. It'd be great if the White Sox could finally get a Cy Young uh, in their grasp because the they've had really good starting pitching performances as of late. Uh, and Dylan Cease is, is having one of those seasons, and now we can look as we get into August and September what he needs to do to get past Verlander, McClanahan. I was going to say Garrett Cole, but he got blew up by Seattle today. He got blowed up real good. <laughs> so I, I think that's where Cease is going to be compared to. And right now, the not going as deep as McClanahan and Verlander have in their starts and I think Jim's right. It does go hand in hand with the walk rate. So something to monitor with Cease in these upcoming starts. Continue to do what you're doing, Dylan. You've been terrific. But if suddenly we're watching a lot of starts where he goes six innings and only walks one guy, then we're going to see that walk rate drop. And then I want to know what the arguments are in late September from the national writers that they still don't think Dylan Cease is a top contender for the American League Scion. I think he is, but... I'm biased, and I think if you pull a lot of national writers, he's in the top three, but he's not the favorite to win the award right now. And uh, I am hoping that August and September, Dylan Seas continues to be awesome for the White Sox and uh, convinces more and more writers to vote for him when it's time to vote in October into November. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, this is a four-game series upcoming for the Chicago White Sox. So you'll get a White Sox wake-up call Friday morning. That's going to be coming from me. And hopefully that will be good vibes as the White Sox win the first game in that series Thursday night. But I'll be recapping that game. And a reminder, we're going to be having the watch party Friday night at 7 o'clock. You're not doing anything anyways. So grab some drinks and watch the game along with us in playback and on SoxMachine.com. If you just discovered Sox Machine or you've been a longtime lurker of Sox Machine, you can help support us at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they are the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. Follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. You can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. Subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple Music and Spotify. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. Your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing. But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com